Good folks, if you'd like to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 20. John chapter 12, verse 20. We're in the second of our Journey to Golgotha and Beyond series. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip. They probably came to Philip because he was one of two disciples that had a Greek name. Uh, The other one was Andrew. Uh, So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, also um, a lot of Gentiles in that particular town, with a request. Sir, they said, very respectful, uh, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus comes up with this very strange reply that doesn't seem to have any connection, but we'll find the connection as we proceed. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd was there and heard it uh, and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit and not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So when Jesus says there, I will be lifted up, it's referring to his crucifixion. We find that from verse 33. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? He didn't fit with the image that they had. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Curious. Why would Jesus leave and hide himself? Last week, um, Craig talked about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, he had set his sights on Jerusalem. He was now journeying there and he knew what was going to come in order for him to serve the purposes of God. And at the time, he was right up in the extreme north of Israel in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's about 170 kilometers from Jerusalem. And so he still had quite a bit of distance to travel. But in today's passage, we find Jesus in Bethany, which is about two and a half kilometers from Jerusalem. And his journey is just about over. Within a week, he's going to be flinching as the first lash of the whip 
comes down on his back. But that time between Caesarea Philippi and Bethany wasn't uneventful. Jesus had done a lot of very significant things, and not least of which, he had raised his precious friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus wasn't present when Lazarus died. He was actually a couple of days' journey away on the other side of the Jordan River. And so when he finally arrived in Bethany, you can read about this in the preceding passage, Lazarus had actually been in the grave for three days, and he was smelling. And so you can imagine the stir when Jesus ordered Lazarus to be exhumed and commanded him to come forth alive. It was such a significant miracle that even Jesus' greatest enemies and detractors recognized that it was a miracle. They couldn't explain it. This is how John puts it in his, in his gospel here, in the previous chapter. He says, the Pharisees said, here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And so from that day onwards, they plotted to murder Jesus. How do you figure that one out? They've actually seen the Son of God carry out this incredible miracle. They're convinced that it was a miracle, that as a result of this, many people are going to go and believe in him. And yet they still deny that he's the Son of God and they plan to kill him. And I might add, sometime later, they plotted to murder Lazarus as well. Jesus um, removed himself for a short period of time before he came back for that last week in Jerusalem. And John records for us, also in the preceding passage, on account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. But you know, the Pharisees had seen nothing yet. The day after they had taken out a contract on Lazarus's life, Jesus pitches up and he makes his triumphant entry into Jerusalem and this massive crowd comes and starts hailing him as the king of the Jews. And so you can just imagine what that did to the blood pressure of the Pharisees. So they were running around exerting all the authority that they had or thought they had over Jesus and the crowd and they were saying, you shouldn't be doing this, but it was to no avail. If you look at the verse just before um, our passage today, John records that they say, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And the irony of this was, and this is very significant, that only the Jews were actually going after Jesus. But within a few years, the whole world would be going after Jesus. These Pharisees were very ethnocentric, and for them it was the Jewish people that mattered. Historians tell us that when they used to pray, they would pray almost on a daily basis, Father God, thank you that I'm not a dog, thank you that I'm not a woman, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Incredibly PC guys. <laughs> um, and even Jesus, on the time that he was on earth, he concentrated on the Jews as well. He also preached and ministered to the Jews. But the Bible is replete with evidence that God's ultimate plan was to save the whole of mankind and not just the Jews. But how was Jesus' ministry going to take that quantum leap? I mean, he's about to die. How is it going to shift from ministering to the Jews to ministering to everybody? And that's the backstory to this passage that we're considering today. John records the words of the Pharisees, the whole world has gone after him. 
Knowing that for the Pharisees, the whole world was the Jewish people alone, God's chosen people. And then in the very next verse, he writes, now there were some Greeks among them who went up to worship at the feast. And so the people John is referring to, they may have been, literally been Greeks, but they, that word for Greek was also used to refer to any Gentile, anybody who wasn't a Jew. And we know from the Bible that some Gentiles actually became Jews by undergoing circumcision and following all of the Jewish practices. They were referred to as proselytes, and the Bible refers to them in a number of different places. And then the Bible also talks about God-fearers. Do you remember the centurion Cornelius? He was a God-fearer. And these were people that worshipped the God of Israel by observing all the, the religious practices and festivals, but they weren't prepared to go as far as getting the snip, getting circumcised. I don't blame them. <laughs> um, and Jesus, and, and, and the, these people that John mentions, the Greeks, they were in that last category. They were God-fearers. They hadn't actually become Jews, taken that last step. So by placing that unintended prophecy of the Pharisees back-to-back with the request of the Gentiles, we can deduce that what John is going to do is he's going to tell us something about how Jesus is going to multiply his influence from just the people of Israel to the whole world. And so we're going to find the answers to three different questions in this passage. First of all, how did Jesus multiply his influence? After all, he's just about to die. Secondly, how do we multiply our influence in this time and in this generation? And then thirdly, if you're like those Greeks, asking the question, well, we want to see Jesus, we want to know what he's like, then that question will also be answered. How can we see Jesus if you're a seeker and you're like those Greeks? So let's turn to the first one. How did Jesus multiply his influence? Jesus knew that for his influence to extend to people like the Greeks mentioned by John, for them to be included in God's salvation plan, it would require radical influence. And this is where a spiritual truth comes out. Because we know in the Bible that multiplication comes often through death. And that's what's going to happen here. Jesus was referring to his own death and resurrection. So Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So you can see what had happened. The Pharisees thought that all the Jews were going to go after Jesus Jesus has this in mind. The Greeks now come asking, and he's starting to answer the question for us. Yes, this is for everybody, but how's it going to happen? It's going to come through my death. Jesus knew exactly when he would be crucified, and it was only a few days away. And then he likens the result of that death to that of a seed being buried in the ground. A little, little bit of work on the internet. One seed produces a plant with five heads on it, and there are about 22 seeds per head, which means that one kernel produces about 110 seeds. 
So that's a multiplication effect of 11,000%. And that's what he's trying to get at. Incredible multiplication through something dying. And then Jesus said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's in verse 32. Now, why would Jesus being lifted up multiply his influence? There's a lot of different reasons why his death multiplied his influence, but I'd like to just use two that he provides for us here in the passage. To begin, we just need to keep in mind that this lifting up of Jesus is going to draw people to himself. And there's two reasons why his lifting up is going to draw people to himself. Firstly, when Jesus is lifted up, God's name will be glorified. Let's have a look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And that's because God's name is more than a label. God's name represents all his superb qualities in their entirety. So for God to glorify his name, he would need to show his glory, his name, in all its striking beauty and splendor. By being lifted up on the cross, dying and rising to life again, Jesus made visible to us, to the whole world, he made accessible those superlative qualities of God. So as we look at the cross, we see his infinite love. There's nothing else that can define love in a better way than what Jesus did for us on the cross. As Jesus was lifted up on the cross, we see God's boundless kindness. Every one of us had rebelled against him. We're all deserving of God's justice, and yet he chose to be kind to us by allowing Jesus to be punished in our place. When you look at the cross, you see his awesome power. You see his unspoiled purity. Jesus wouldn't have been resurrected from the dead unless he had been a man without sin. It's only because he was pure that it was possible for him to be raised by God from the dead. Death could not hold on to him because he was pure. We see the beautiful, crystal clear beauty, a purity of God on the cross. And now just imagine, uh, folks, just think back to your days when you were single, if you're not single at the moment. Um, just think of somebody who is full of love, full of kindness, full of justice, full of power, full of purity. And we'd be drawn to such a person, wouldn't we? And that's exactly what happened when Jesus was raised for us. He was lifted up so that God's name could be glorified. But there's a second reason why being lifted up would draw people to Jesus. We find it in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you see what happened on the cross? Was Jesus willingly accepted the judgment that was due us? And so God's judgment came down on the earth, on the sins of people on the earth, but he did it by judging Jesus and by punishing him. He turned his back on Jesus. And folks, before that happened, 
there was a, an unbridgeable chasm between us and God. We couldn't have access to God. God couldn't draw us to himself because the judgment for our sins hadn't yet come. And God needs to be a God of both judgment and mercy and kindness. And we see both of those coming together in the cross. And so I, I like to think of it in these terms. Just think of a, a beautiful big estate with um, farmland in it, community living there, forests, um, streams, just a beautiful place. And inside of it, there's, there's a palace where a king lives. But that whole estate is surrounded by an impregnable wall. And outside of that wall are people that have rebelled against the king. Outside of that wall, death is in control. Outside of that wall, Satan is in control. And folks, we were like that. We were outside of that wall. It was only when Jesus made a way for us through that wall that we could come out of that place where death is in control and where Satan is in control. And so it's so wonderful to think that through the death of Jesus, we can be drawn to God because that last barrier that was there between us and God has been removed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this was the reason why Jesus was lifted up. But it was gonna cost Jesus. Have a look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's significant that in the Gospel of John, we don't see an account of Jesus wrestling with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see it in the other Gospels, and of course he did wrestle with God in the Garden of Gethsemane just the night before he was due to be tortured and die. But John shows us another time where he grapples with God. And I think the reason why he does this is because Jesus went through this temptation and this struggle often. I think he was often troubled in his soul. And he was saying, Father, would you please save me from this hour? But then he reminds himself, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Multiplication of influence doesn't come without cost. Jesus allowed God to lift him up so that you could see him. We wouldn't be sitting here today if he hadn't done it. And now we need to ask ourselves the question, well, how can we multiply our influence? And the simple answer, of course, is that we do it by lifting up Jesus, because when we lift up Jesus, we're told, he will draw all men to himself. But although that answer is simple, there's nothing easy about doing it. So let's just have a look at that. To lift Jesus up is to go through a type of crucifixion. Just as Jesus was prepared to die in order to bring multiplication, so must we. But what does this dying and this crucifixion look, look like? Does it mean that we need to be martyred? Do we only get one opportunity in our whole lives to do it? Maybe by dying for, for God? Let's have a look at the parallel passage to today's one. It's in the Gospel of Luke because I think this has some clues 
that'll help us to bring this down to earth so that we can see how we can lift Jesus up through our own lives. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I wonder if you can see one of the clues there, that taking up our cross and being allowing Jesus to be lifted up through us is for us to go through a little mini crucifixion of denying ourselves. And this is reinforced by John in a letter that he wrote. Uh, let's have a look at that. 1 John 3.16, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Can you see that he's given an example there of what it looks like to lay down your life? If you've got something that would fill somebody else's needs, then you would give it to them. This is about ordering your needs and your priorities below the needs and priorities of other people. That's exactly what Christ did, isn't it? Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. There's a lot of things that we can grasp, a lot of things that we can hold on to. But he didn't consider those things something to be grasped. He let them go. He became nothing. He became a servant, became obedient even unto death. Let me just give you a few other examples. Um, just on, on, on my way, walking into the back of the church this morning, I, I bumped into Haley and uh, asked her how she was feeling about leading praise and worship this morning. And she said, I haven't done this for years. And she said, I'm feeling really out of my comfort zone. And that's a little bit of dying, isn't it? That's a little bit of a, a crucifixion. It's allowing Jesus to be lifted up in us. And the wonderful thing is that through that small act of self-denial, of taking herself out of her comfort zone for the sake of God and for obedience to him, that seeds of multiplication are produced. Something has, something has been multiplied as a result of that small thing. And I was also um, reflecting on it this morning, another, just a, a small example, because this is what it's all about, folks. It's about the small things. It's about lifting Jesus up by dying these little deaths, by having these little crucifixions in the day-to-day -day running of life. Um, years ago, when we were living in Chipingi and Catherine had just been born, um, Gail's mum came to, to help us with Catherine. Um, you, know, you know, it's the usual thing that happens. Mum comes when the baby's born. So she came to join us. And uh, we were living on a, in a farmhouse um, out in the middle of nowhere. And I used to go to work on my motorbike. Um, and when I came back, the, the gate, the security gate, was on quite a steep slope. And we always kept the gate closed. Um, so I always found it difficult to kind of like balance on my motorbike and push the gate open and try and get through. But the first time that I came back from work that mom was in the house, 
um, she heard me coming and she came out, she opened the gate for me to go inside. And I'm just thinking of multiplication here. I, I don't think mum um, really understands what that did in my heart. It was, it was just a, a special, almost like a prophetic thing that um, communicated love and acceptance to me in a way that nothing else could. And it was very, very special. And that's, that's the, what, what we can do because it makes God look so winsome when we act in that way. So let's go back to today's passage, uh, verse 24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, obviously emphasizing it here. This is something that's important. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What's all this about hating your life? I like the definition that comes at the bottom study notes in the NIV study Bible. It says, love for God must be such that all other loves are, by comparison, hatred. So what are they getting at there? I read the story of a man called James Calvert. He went out as a missionary to the cannibals in the Fiji Islands. And the captain of the ship sought to turn him back. He said, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go amongst such savages. Calvert only replied, we died before we came here. Isn't that significant? And so for Calvert's family, for his friends, they would have seen the love that he was showing to those people, to God through those people in Fiji, they would almost have seen it as being hatred for his family, hatred for his future, hatred for his security. It's because the love that we have for God means that every other love pales into insignificance. It's not that we don't love our family and these other things, but in comparison, our love for God must just outweigh it completely, as it did in the example of James Calvert's life. There's two more things I just want to highlight in these verses. It's important that in our self-denial, we are guided by Jesus. Do You see here where it talks about we need to be where he is, we must follow him. Where he is, we will be as well. I think that's because sometimes we end up denying ourselves for the wrong motives and we end up in a place which is far away from Jesus. And that's very sad. The story that's coming to mind now is the, the story of Mary and Martha. Do you remember how Jesus came with his disciples to stay at Mary and Martha's house? And Martha was busy doing all the arrangements and getting everything sorted out. And so much so that she eventually got angry with her sister and she got frustrated with Jesus. And she said to Jesus, can't you see that Martha isn't helping me? Make her help me. <laughs> And you know, when we, when we get to that place of grumpiness, I think, and frustration towards God and anger towards our brothers and sisters, it means that our um, acts of self-sacrifice have become self-serving um, in some way, and we're not ending up where Jesus is. And then if you look at verse 26 there, it says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, 
what I get from this passage is that the way in which God honors us is by glorifying his name through us. Just take a look. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then, though he's tempted to disobey, Jesus submits to his Father's will, and he says, Father, glorify your name. At which point, God's voice comes from heaven. So the best way that God can honor us is by glorifying his name through our sacrificial obedience. Folks, when we lift Jesus up in some of the ways that I've described, and when we do it corporately as a church, then God's name is going to be glorified through us. And what greater honor could we receive from God? And I trust that as a church we will be like that. That's one of the reasons why we value service in this church, because Jesus was about serving. He came to serve. And when we serve one another, then we're crucifying ourselves, we're going through that little death, we're lifting Jesus up, and it's incredibly winsome. It draws people to God. Then lastly, how can you see Jesus if you're a seeker today? You see, you could be like these Greeks. They're coming up and they're saying, we would like to see Jesus. We'd like to connect with him. We'd like to get to know more about him. What's he like? I just got four very brief observations for you, and they're based on this passage. First observation is this. If you want to hold on to the reins of your life, then you won't see Jesus. If you're prepared to give up your rights and to yield control of your life to Jesus, then you'll see him. And that's why he says, if you want to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. Because we only truly find life in a close relationship with our creator. (laughs) And the only way we can do that is by letting go of the reins of our life, allowing him to steer. Observation number two. You may need to set aside some of the preconceptions that you have. Jesus is often very different to what we expect. I I had a, a Bible school lecturer who when we started reading the book of Romans, he said, prepare to meet your God and you may not like what you find. You may be surprised. You may be in some ways offended. But ultimately, when God opens up your eyes to these truths, you'll realize that it's just so beautiful. So the crowd answered him in verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So they had a particular perception of what Jesus was going to like. They thought that it was based on the truth. But in actual fact, it wasn't based on the truth. Because the Bible was full of evidence to show that the Son son of Man, the Christ, would come and he would die and then he would be raised up. So there's many things that you might find in the initial stages offensive about Jesus. Maybe it's some of the things that we've discussed in our Tough Questions series. That's the reason why we went through that series. But press on. Press on because you will find um, a jewel beyond beyond all wealth. Uh, Observation number three. Don't delay in responding to Jesus. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This was a prophetic act. Um, It was an act that pointed to the fact that he was going to die and leave the earth and that they had a certain amount of time to see him as the Son of God. And I think it's also a prophetic act for us as well because what Jesus is saying here is that we have a certain number of days on earth when we have the opportunity to seek Jesus and to, to say we would like to see Jesus. But that time will come to an end and Jesus will be hidden from us. Once we die, then we will be separated from God unless we are in Jesus. And so we mustn't delay in responding to him. And then the last one is that we need to put our trust in Jesus and believe. And so just in in conclusion, folks, Jesus multiplied his influence from the Jews to the entire world by dying on the cross. And he did that through being lifted up. When he was lifted up, he drew all men to himself. And the thing is that Jesus needs to be lifted up in our time and in our generation. People in his time and his generation saw him dying and being lifted up. And then in our time and in our generation, people haven't seen that in the flesh. But they need to see it in us. They need to see us reflecting that death and that resurrection. So the suffering of Jesus needs to be made visible. It needs to be made visible to your friends. It needs to be made accessible to your colleagues. And the question is, will you do it? Will you commit yourself this morning to being the kind of person who is prepared to identify with the death of Jesus Christ by dying to self, dying to your own flesh, dying to your own desires in a way that is obedient to God? Are you prepared to give him control and access to your life? Are you prepared to give him access to all areas of your life? It's another thing because often there are certain areas where we just don't want him to go. But we need to. We need to allow him in. We need to give him control. We need to yield to him. Should we just stand? I think there's something very special about um, committing ourselves to the purposes of God as a, as a body of believers. I know that you can go away as individuals and say, yes, um, I want Jesus to be lifted up in my life. I'm prepared to go through these many um, crucifixions so that he would be lifted up. But there's something very significant about doing it as a body, as Harvest Church, because God has chosen to um, reveal himself to the world through the body of Christ. And so I, I would like to lead us all in a prayer now. Um, and please uh, just, just pray it out um, aloud if you want to commit yourself to this.